please turn in your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. This is our second message in this letter as we look at this um, exposition of Paul is of uh, Ephesians. We'll probably be here um, most of the year. I'm going to, uh, this section, we're going to look at verses 3 to 6 this morning, but for the sake of context, I'm going to read um, from verse 1 down to verse 14. Um, this section in verse 3 to uh, 14 is, is one long section. I, I want you to somewhat get the, the context of it as we look at verse, verses 3 to 6 later. So Ephesians 1. 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, According to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who, have, who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. These words that by the power of your Holy Spirit you um, imparted uh, through Paul. Revealing in a sense uh, this mystery or the intricacies of salvation of the work of redemption of how you and your son and the Holy Spirit have all uh, worked actively and, and uh, presently in redeeming sinners we only really from a personal perspective see uh, salvation uh, from what we know personally but through your word, we gain insight into your workings, into your plans, into your purposes, into your will, 
into what actually happened. As babies don't really understand how they were born, the new birth is similar. So Lord, as we look at this passage, help us to understand, help us to receive, help us to glean wisdom, and help us to apply these truths to our lives, to our faith, that they may bolster our faith, that they may instruct us, and they may build us up so that we may be um, better worshipers of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to start with a question. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? I mean, well, sometimes we don't think about that. And, and we all know things. And almost all of the things we know, we learn somehow. Either through our parents and siblings and our upbringing or through our own observations of the world and our surroundings or our experiences or interactions with others or learning in school. But how do we know what we know? Some things we have always known or we've learned intuitively. There's like the concepts of right and wrong or good and evil or fairness, uh, this inherent concept of morality, um, things which the Bible says that God has written upon our hearts. There's also those things he has written upon our hearts uh, concerning his existence, his law and our accountability to him, his judgment and life after death. But how do we know what we know? And especially concerning God. There are many things that human beings can learn and know for certain concerning life and reality and creation. Uh, things which, you know, outside of our faith and, and, and outside of Christianity, things which fall under the category of general revelation. Uh, those things that can be observed and measured and tested and in realities such as uh, things that like uh, uh, mathematics and, and logic and, and uh, using the scientific method. Uh, it, it, the, these things fall under the category of what theologians call general revelation. That God has made this world in, in such a way that it's knowable, that it's intelligible, that we can learn things. But that category of general re revelation, it also includes God and morality and judgment. But then there are those specific details concerning God and mankind and the meaning and purpose of life, of salvation and eternal life, which we can't really figure out on our own or be sure of on our own. Things which we must learn from God's word. And not only through God's word, but through the aid of the Holy Spirit. This is what theologians refer to as special revelation. Or to put it another way, it's impossible for man to reason his way up to God and figure out God on his own. If, if, if mankind, if human beings are to know God, God must reveal himself to man, must condescend to man and impart knowledge to mankind through his special revelation, through his word. 
something that we can be sure about because it's objective and we can read it and we can discern things about God. It's the only way we can be sure about who God is and and what He's like and what He has done and what He has promised. It's the only way to be sure about anything concerning God is through His Word. And this is why we are to be, as our church name, we are to be Bereans, to search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are true because our faith in everything is grounded upon His Word. It's how we know things about God. And here in this passage, Paul is uh, revealing to us things about salvation, things about the Godhead, His work in salvation. And we must lean upon them. And there's a sense that this this gets to this doctrine of special revelation, but also of bibliology, of understanding the word. There's a couple passages um, uh, that that speak to the word of God and, and, and how it enlightens us. Peter said this in in, uh, 1 Peter. His, his first epistle in, in verse uh, 10 to 12 about uh, not only salvation, but about the word of God and how we can understand salvation through the word of God. He said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been declared to you along through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter's saying in that passage is that that kind of what Paul is hinting at here is he talks about the mystery of God's will, and he will further elaborate upon that mystery of salvation in chapter 3. Peter's saying this salvation of sinful man, uh, the prophets had alluded to it, they, they prophesied about it, but it wasn't as clear to them. And, and they knew there was a Redeemer, and they, they knew there would be a Messiah, but it, it became clearer and clearer as time went on, as God would provide more revelation to his people through his prophets, and then the apostles, it would be even clearer uh, about the way of salvation, but how mankind is saved. And Peter also, um, in refuting uh, false teachers and false prophets who would plague the, the early New Testament church in his second epistle, in 2 Peter 1, we, we get this, this, uh, these few verses that, that in a sense, uh, uh, teach us about uh, Scripture and how Scripture came about. And he says this in 2 Peter 1, in verses 19 to 21. He says, and we have as... More sure, the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Spoke from God. And so the only thing we can truly be sure about concerning uh, eternal matters, concerning God, concerning spirituality, is from the Bible. 
from his word. And, and we do well to come to the Bible with an attitude of humility and submission and surrendering to what it says, even if we don't fully understand it. We are to submit to the word of God. In coming to Jesus at night, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews in, in John chapter 3, he knows there's something about Jesus. He sees the miracles. He knows. And he asks them about the kingdom of God and really about salvation. And Jesus unfolds to him the new birth, the, this concept of regeneration that you, one must be born again to enter into the kingdom. And, and just as we don't contribute anything to our physical birth, we don't really contribute anything to our spiritual birth either. It is a work of God from beginning to end. Yes, we do, in a sense, uh, make decisions, and there is words, and there's confessions, and there's actions, but it's the Holy Spirit that causes that new birth. And here, uh, Nicodemus isn't quite catching what Jesus is trying to say to them. And Jesus says to him in reply in John 3, in verse 12 and 13, he says, If I told you earthly things... And you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See, Jesus is trying to use this earthly analogy of uh, birth to explain the new birth and, and how the Spirit works in bringing someone into the kingdom. And, and then he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, saying, listen, I came from heaven. I know these things. Listen. And as the Apostle Paul begins to unfold this glorious mystery of God's will in this letter to the Ephesians and to the surrounding churches, this glorious mystery of Christ, this mystery which was hidden for the ages, as he would say in chapter 3 and verse 4 and 9, he begins with an anthem of praise. Here in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. This is here, uh, that's why I read this whole, uh, these verses in the beginning. Because this is one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Uh, there, there's, uh, I tried to split, sometimes it's hard to split things up. I don't want to split up one thought. But um, I, I do want, we see verses 3 to 6 as in a sense a thought. But this is part of a longer section. Because as Paul begins his letter to write to the Ephesians to explain to them um, God's mystery concerning Jesus Christ, concerning salvation, concerning the church, who they are and how they are to uh, live and move and have their being. He, he's just overwhelmed by the glories of God in his blessings through salvation. And so he goes on and on about these spiritual blessings that God has given us in and through salvation and how he saved us. Whereas one author writes explaining this long section in verses 3 to 14, he calls it Paul's doxology or his praise. Paul's praise to God for redemption in Jesus Christ from verse 3 to 14. And then he breaks it up in these sections, which we will clearly see as we go, um, not only uh, this morning, but the next couple weeks, that in verses 3 to 6, he says, chosen by the Father. Verse 7 to 12, redeemed by the Son. In verses 13 to 14, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so we see uh, each member of the Trinity 
and their work in salvation here in this long section from verses 3 to 14. But for this morning, we will be looking at verses 3 to 6 and, and, and primarily about the Father's work. And as Paul begins this anthem of praise to God, he shows us here, in a sense, four aspects of our spiritual blessings which ought to inform and fuel our faith and praise to God. That, that, that's the goal. That's what Paul is, it wants, to, wants uh, to happen in the Ephesians and in, in every believer who would read this. He, he wants them to understand this glorious mystery of how God has redeemed mankind and, and, and what he has done to save us and, and so that it will inform and fuel our faith and praise to God so that we would overflow in praise to God because of what he has done on our behalf for his glory. And he begins with the first aspect of our spiritual blessing in verse 3, the origin of our spiritual blessings, the origin of our spiritual blessings. As he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These, these spiritual blessings, they're, they're, they're everything, in a sense, spiritual that comes from God, everything that he has given us. And the origin of our spiritual blessings is heaven. And from the Father specifically, but he says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there is, in a sense, some mystery there. Um, but he will elaborate on that as he speaks about the, the primary, uh, main, number one blessing, spiritual blessing, and that of salvation. And that it's from the Father, that, that God is the creator. And, and, and in a sense, within the Trinity, we see that through Scripture, that is the Father who is, in a sense, it decrees all things. All, all members of the Trinity are equal, co-equal, co-eternal. They are one. There is one God in three persons. But there is a sense that there is a certain functions and roles of each member of the Trinity. And, and, and God the Father decrees Everything comes from heaven, every spiritual blessing, and, and primarily from God the Father. And he says here, uh, in a sense, through Jesus Christ, as Paul writes. But uh, listen to what James says. And some of us have memorized this, this passage, this, this memory verse in James, in the beginning of James in 1.17. He says this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Saying that, that every, everything that is good comes from God. Because God and God alone is good, as, as, as Jesus even said, as uh, the, the, the rich uh, young ruler came to him or, or in the parables in the, or in that narrative in the, in the gospel, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies to him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. No one is good but God. Only, only God is good, and every good thing comes from God, and particularly those spiritual things, uh, salvation and sanctification and uh, everything that is good. Uh, and we are, in a sense, uh, as James says, brought forth 
by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This first fruits is this, this, this concept of harvesting the earth. And, and part of that first fruits is a redemption of sinful man. The origin of our spiritual blessings is first from the Father, as all things, creation, provision, blessings, trials, recreation, every spiritual blessing comes from Him, from the Father, second, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is to glorify Jesus Christ as He glorifies the Father, as we read through the scriptures and, and through the gospels and through the epistles, we learn that each member of the Trinity, in a sense, is glorifying one another in their functions. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, in verse 19. He says, therefore, Jesus, as someone, uh, uh, came, as he's speaking to the Jews, he answers them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes." Each member of the Trinity glorifies one another and they exercise their own sovereign will according to their pleasure. One commentator, he writes concerning verse 3. He says, in his providential grace, God has already given believers total blessing. Spiritual does not refer to immaterial blessings as opposed to material ones, but rather to the work of God who is a divine and spiritual source of all blessings. In the heavenly places refers to the realm of God's complete heavenly domain from which all his blessings come. Which brings us to the second aspect of our spiritual blessings. We've seen the or origin of our spiritual blessings in verse 3, that everything comes from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul gets into in a sense, the first of our spiritual blessings, if you are in Christ, the first of our spiritual blessings uh, came before creation, before the foundation of the world in election. As he says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And just uh, as a side, um, as we come to Scripture, um, there's this this uh, this sense or, or this this uh, uh, discipline um, called hermeneutics. As I explained in Sunday school before, some of you may know this. It's just a, a big fancy word to speak about uh, Bible interpretation, how we interpret the Bible which is almost exactly the same as we interpret any other form of literature. That we look at the grammar, and, and grammar matters. Subjects, verbs, objects. And, and as we look at this passage, as every passage, we ask those basic, 
who, what, when, where, why, how questions, who is speaking, who is being spoken to, what action is, is happening, and who is being acted upon. Right here in verse 4, it says, just as he chose us, God the Father chose us, elected us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, before creation, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. That's the purpose, that we would be holy. And as we go through this letter written by the Apostle Paul and we consider this doctrine of election or predestination or God's uh, sovereign choice of believers before they were ever created to be in him, to be saved, we got to think of Paul's own life. Because if anyone personally experienced and understood election, it was the Apostle Paul. He could easily say more than any other believer. And for some believers, it's easy for us to say, given our testimony. We can look back in our lives and say, I was not seeking God at all. And Paul, more than anybody else, could say, I was not seeking God at all. In fact, he was on his way to capture Christians, to lead them off, to destroy the church. He was going the exact opposite way until Jesus Christ uh, arrested him, in a sense, with his divine vision and say, Paul, you're going the wrong way. Go the other way. And he converted him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is, in a sense, to a lesser degree, how we are all come into the kingdom. We're all going our own way, doing our own thing uh, against God until God interrupted us, arrested us, stopped us, turned us around to go the other way and saved us. As Paul says in, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. No one. No one will boast about their salvation. Not one. No one will say, I made the right decision, I was brought up, I was taught, I raised my hand, I walked the, the, the aisle, I got my ticket punched, I got my hand stamped. No one will say that before Jesus Christ in eternity. And no one should say it now if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are a true believer... It is because of God's work in your life, and that work began before the foundation of the world in eternity past, in election. The first, the very first of our spiritual blessings is God, by his sovereign will, according to his grace, choosing a people for himself, yet to be born, that he would set apart for holiness to be redeemed in Jesus Christ before creation. Charles Spurgeon, he says this uh, concerning election. 
He says, I know that God chose me before I was born because there was no reason for him to choose me after I was born. And if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that. As we learn about the gospel and salvation, we learn that God is holy, he's perfect, and he will judge every sin. And, and our sins are, are legion, they're multitude, they're innumerable. Only God can number our sins, and, and there's no reason for him to, to, uh, to save us except his own sovereign will and his love and his mercy, to display his love and his mercy and his forgiveness in us. What Paul says to uh, the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, once again, this, this election, this choosing, this drawing, this calling to salvation of believers. First of our spiritual blessings is election in Christ before creation for the purpose of holiness. That we would be holy, that we would be redeemed, that God would display his work of not only salvation in us, but sanctification in us. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, this is also one of, the, one of the key passages explaining the church and not only how the church came about, but our purpose and our mission. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is, in a sense, uh, Peter is almost uh, quoting uh, from Deuteronomy and some other uh, verses, uh, uh, speaking almost uh, about uh, God's election, God's choosing of the church, of believers, the same way he chose Israel out of all the nations. As we read in Deuteronomy 7, which is, in a sense, Israel's charter. It's who Israel is, their their, um, identity as a nation. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Moses, writing to Israel, says, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, his covenant with Abraham, in a sense, which he would also reiterate to Jacob and then somewhat even expand upon to, through Moses to the people. His covenant to Abraham, that he would make him a nation. And through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And, and you know, in your 
in your own Christian life, it's good to know the whole Bible and to know these main characters of the Bible. And I'm thankful that Mark did a good job this Sunday school speaking about the Old Testament and how important that is. And this figure, Abraham, to know how he became the father of Israel. He was not seeking God. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, he, he was an idolater, just like many of us were. In fact, all of us were if we were in Christ. We were idolaters. We just had different idols. And God called us out of darkness into light. He called Abraham out of idolatry and said, I will make you a people. He called him out. And just like he calls all of us out, like he called uh, Israel out amongst the nations and chose them amongst the nations. This is the very first chronologically of our spiritual blessings is that in eternity past, God chose believers in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Why does he love us? Not because there's anything lovely within us, not because of anything we could do, would do, should do. It's because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. And he demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But that love never began. It never had a starting point. It didn't start when we, when we uh, uh, were converted. It didn't even start at the cross of Christ. It, it began in eternity past when he set his love upon us and chose us to be holy and blameless before him in Love. And so we see as Paul is unfolding these, these glorious mysteries concerning salvation and God's plan for redemption in the church. And he starts with the origin of our spiritual blessings. And then the first chronologically of our spiritual blessings, God's election. And then uh, verse 5, the second of our spiritual blessings, adoption. And just as, as he writes in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, now we, we don't become sons and daughters in God's family until we are converted. But nonetheless, this verse clearly says that he has already set us apart, predestined us for adoption. He, in a sense, uh, or use a, a human metaphor or analogy, he, he picked us out. He signed the papers, the adoption paperwork. But we aren't actually his. We don't actually come into his family until conversion. But nonetheless, as this, verb sa- this verse says, we are predestined by the Father. And, and I remember, I, I know this doctrine can be hard to understand and to grasp and to accept by many people. And I remember the first time I heard this term. I was a, a, a new believer. And uh, uh, probably... 
not even six months. I, I don't even know if I've been a believer a year. And, and I remember uh, being in this Bible study, and, and, and uh, one of my friends at the time was speaking about another friend. And they said, yeah, yeah so-and-so believes in predestination. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, well, he, he, it just means that God chooses who he will save before the foundation of the world. And I was like, and then I took it the wrong way, as, as most people who take predestination the wrong way. I, I took it in terms of fatalism. Well, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do or we're just whatever. But then I went away from that conversation, and as I began to read my Bible, it started popping up. Predestination, predestiny, chosen. He chose us. He chooses us, and it's all throughout the Bible. I mean, it, whether you accept the, the doctrine of election or predestination or not, you still have to deal with the word. Like, the word. Predestining us. That, that word is there. Predestined. Chose. Choose. Those words are actually in your Bible. And so whether you accept it or not, you have to deal with those words. Because the only way we really know who God is or what he has done or what he is like is through his word. And if you don't accept his word, then the problem is not with his word. It's with you. But we see this doctrine unfolded even more. Probably one of the, the, the greatest sections of Scripture, a, a, a section, a, a passage of great hope, of hope for the believer. And, and what our hope is grounded upon, the foundation of our hope in Romans chapter 8. And I, I've heard of believers, I haven't done this, I, I, I wish I would, and, and maybe someday I will. But there are many believers who uh, memorize the whole chapter. Romans chapter 8, and, and that, that's a good practice. If there's any chapter to memorize, that would probably be it. So I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and read along with me. And, and what is, in a sense, towards the end, and, and this foundation for our hope, our hope for life, our hope in Christ, our, our, our hope for uh, salvation, for, for everything, is grounded in the fact that God loved us. And we know some of the, the, this first verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. In a sense, this foundation of, uh, of hope founded upon um, God's providence. But then he goes on. He says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, 
Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nothing. Because our salvation, our standing in God's kingdom, it didn't begin with us. It began in eternity past with him choosing us. And this is a foundation for our hope. And some detractors or opponents of election or predestination or also known as Calvinism, they would paint the picture that this dirty, mean, monstrous doctrine that condemns people to hell. Well, first and foremost, God is the one who condemns people to hell. He's the only one who can condemn people to hell. But they, they, they fail to see the comfort of this doctrine. The comfort, the hope of this doctrine is the fact that our salvation didn't begin with us. It's, it's not uh, dependent upon us. If you are saved, you can't lose your salvation because your salvation began in eternity past with God uh, uh, electing you, choosing you, predestining you. And then as uh, Paul says in Romans 8, this what we call the golden chain of redemption, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. He predestined, he called, he justified, and then he will glorify. As Paul says to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. There's hope in that. that, That's the foundation for all our hope because it began with God. It it, it didn't begin with us. It began with God. And it ends with God as he conforms us into the image of his son. And so the, the second of our spiritual blessings is that we are predestined by the Father, predestined by the Father, to the Father through the Son, third, according to His will. To the Father through the Son. That, that as Jesus says to the Jews in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As you say there, once again, the verbs, the subject, the objects, no one, meaning no one, can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, this doctrine of effectual calling, of a calling a people to himself, and then I will raise him up on the last day. This, this, it's a done deal. And the deal was done in eternity past. And it's worked out in uh, reality in our own lives. This adoption predestined by the Father, to the Father, through the Son, according to His will. According to His will. As He says, according to the good pleasure of His will in verse 5 of Ephesians 1. According to His will. Not ours. Not ours. No one can work their way to heaven. No one can will their way to heaven. No one can will themselves into the kingdom. And this was a problem with the Old Testament Jews that that Jesus was showing them. And he was trying to uh, 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 elude them or or, or remind them of Abraham and his call of faith. John records this for us in John chapter 1. He talks about Jesus, and and he says this in John chapter 1 and verse 11. 
He came to what was his own, the Jews. And those who were his own did not receive him. They rejected him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Where did they receive the right to become children of God? From Jesus. Even to those who believe in his name, verse 13 of John 1, who were born not of blood, meaning uh, uh, heritage, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, by God's will. We are born again by God's will. We come into his kingdom which he rules and reigns over by his sovereign will, according to his sovereign grace, according to his sovereign pleasure. You know, one one aspect of being God is that you're actually God. You actually get to do whatever you please. And no one can question you. Well, they can, but then they're wrong. John 6, 39. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Once once again, uh, Jesus is speaking about the Father's will. The will of him, the Father who sent me, Jesus, that of all that he has given me in eternity past, in election, in predestination, all that he has given me, I lose nothing. You can't lose your salvation because it didn't begin with you. It's not completed by you. It doesn't end by you. But raise it up on the last day. And before we finish, I, I, I would like to address some common objections to the doctrines of election and predestination. Probably the first one that people raise. If this is true then there's no need to evangelize. And there's some logic to that. If it's true that that God has chosen who he will save before uh, uh, creation and and it's a done deal because it's God that does the work, we are not saved by our works or, or anything that we have done in a sense. We are commanded to repent and believe, but even that is uh, initiated and, and brought about by the, the work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration. But there is a sense that there is some bit of logic to this, this objection. If this is true, if election and predestination are too, true, then there's no need to evangelize. Well, the answer to that objection is we evangelize because we're commanded to. We're commanded to. Even though uh, uh, it's not in our power to argue somebody into the kingdom and we can't, we're commanded to proclaim the gospel and we, our, our, our faithfulness to that command is in a sense one of the means which God uses to bring about his purposes in salvation. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 10. As he talks about how people are saved, and he says this in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true. That's a true statement. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things. 
Paul's explaining the means by which uh, 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 God uh, uh, draws people to himself in calling and in adoption and in conversion, how the Holy Spirit uses his people, whom he has already saved, to proclaim this gospel of salvation through which he would save other sinners. Paul goes on in Romans 10 and verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, have they never heard? On the contrary, they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Talking about, once again, this general revelation that there is a God and there is morality and there is judgment. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's, it's God who saves from beginning to end, but we are to obey his commands and to proclaim his gospel. This is what happens, and we, we can see this worked out in, in Acts 13. At the end of verse 48, as Paul and Barnabas are, are speaking uh, to the Jews and, and proclaiming this gospel, and, and, uh, and, and they're not believing, uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke out in Acts 13, verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And get this, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They believed because they were already appointed to eternal life in eternity past. And Paul and Barnabas were the means by which God uh, drew them to himself and saved them. Another objection. If this is true, then God, if election and predestination is true, then God is not loving because he's condemning people to hell. Like he's choosing, he's only choosing some for salvation and the others he's condemning to hell. Well, we all deserve hell, every one of us, and none of us deserve salvation. For God to save anyone is an act of divine mercy, grace, and love. It's Psalm 14 and even Romans 3. We know that passage in Romans 3, and part of it is Paul quoting Psalm 14, some other psalms, that no one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning that we're all condemned. And if he chooses any of us, then that's grace. And, and if he doesn't choose, if he doesn't choose uh, anybody at all, then that's his prerogative. That's his right. And God is still just. And we, we, we think of the flood. And many skeptics will, will talk about the flood and, and how mean God it was to flood the whole earth, if, if, whether they believe it or not. They, they normally they, 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 uh, scoff at it and they don't believe it. But the amazing thing about the flood isn't that God flooded the whole earth and, and killed conservative estimates would put the population at 24 billion. 
people, and uh, they all died. But that's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is God says, as Moses writes, that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart was evil continually. The amazing thing is that he saved eight people. That's the amazing thing. We all deserve hell. Another objection, if this is true, then we can't be held accountable. and We're, we're just robots. We're, we're just robots. We just do, it's fatalism. But see, this, this concept of free will, free will, a lot of people think free will um, means free choices. We have the freedom to choose. It's not exactly what it says. The Bible talks about will more in terms of desire and your heart attitude and your being. Because many of us know we make choices against our will. How many of you have gone to work when you really didn't feel like going to work? You do it all the time. But our will fallen in Adam is to sin and to be against God. It's not to choose God. We want to do everything contrary to God. And what's interesting is, is, is even um, we, we see this um, even in, uh, in, in the cross of Christ in Acts 2 um, that, that uh, uh, in God's divine plan as Peter is condemning uh, the Jews for, uh, for killing Jesus, which was part of God's plan. And, and they're still condemned for doing it, what was a part of God's plan. Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. Peter is condemning them for killing Jesus, which was a part of God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. He goes on in Acts 4. He says a similar thing. It says, for truly in this city, in Acts 4.27, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And yet they're still responsible. They're still accountable for killing Jesus, for uh, going against God, for being enemies of God, even though that was a part of God's plan all along. Another objection. If this is true, if election and predestination is true, then it's not fair. It's not fair. Or God's not fair. You know, the, the old, you know, toddlers and kids and teenagers, it's just not fair. Well, where do you get your concept of fairness from? And, 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 and is your standard of fair higher than God's? Think about that. God created the whole world. He determines what is fair and what is not. That, that, that's, that's, once again, part of being God. You get to determine what is good and what is not. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 9. Let me see the, 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 the fairness of God. 
Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God is God, and he gets to do whatever he pleases. It's part of being God. And he's able to do with his creation what he desires. And he's told us in his word what he is like and what he has done and what he will do. And to presuppose upon God by our own opinions or our own standards of morality or our own standards of spirituality, uh, it's in a sense blasphemy. One of the main verses I, I, I tell people concerning Bible interpretation, Isaiah 66.2. All Bible interpretation starts there. This is to the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. This is the word of the living God, our creator. If we want to know him, we come to his word with humility, with trembling, and we listen, and we understand, and we allow him to tell us his creation, what he is like. We don't presuppose upon him. We, we don't try to reason our way up or say, well, that's not fair. Or I don't understand how that works. Well, there's a lot of things that are hard to understand in the Bible, which Peter says about Paul's writings. And, and there's many things that we will spend all of eternity learning about. But we don't get to presuppose upon God or come to him with our opinions. We submit to him and, and we humble ourselves before him and we act as Bereans to search the scriptures to see whether these things are true or not. And so we see as Paul unfolds these spiritual blessings and the mysteries, this glorious mystery of salvation in Christ and his plan for the ages in the church, he begins with the origin of our spiritual blessings from the Father through Jesus Christ. And then he gets into the first of our spiritual blessings, election in Christ before creation for holiness. And then the second of our spiritual blessings, adoption, predestined by the Father to the Father through the Son according to his will according to the good pleasure of his will, and fourth, for the purpose, the, the, the purpose of our spiritual blessings, 
is the same purpose why he does everything that he does. To the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. To, to the praise of his glory for himself, for his glory. That's why he created all things. That's why he does the things he does. That's why he decrees the things he decrees. And why he works out the way he works out history and redemption and everything is for his glory. Not ours. And particularly his grace, which he poured out upon us. If grace is earned, it's no longer grace. And we understand that just from a works sense. But that grace began in eternity past. Salvation is of the Lord. Paul speaks about this as he tells, speaks to Titus. And he tells him once again, all, all, the, all the passages, all the evangelistic passages, the passages that allude to the gospel, that explain the gospel, talk about God's grace, about God's acting, about his glory, that he does it all so that no one will boast in the sight of God. You will not boast about your salvation. You will not boast about a wise decision that you did the right thing. If you're honest, you will see that it's God's grace from beginning to end. Paul, Titus 3, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. Why? For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. This is, this is what we were. Before Christ, and yes, it's true that some of us were better than others, but uh, maybe we're not uh, externally as bad as some people, but in our hearts, this is fallen mankind. But verse 4 of Titus 3, when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The main reason why we are to praise and honor and glorify God is because of what God has done in us. And yes, there is this presupposition concerning election and predestination about the unconverted, about those that are outside of the kingdom, that we wonder, well, did God choose them? Are they a part of the elect? Well, that's not for us to decide. We don't know. And someone can grow up in church and they can resist the gospel over and over again. They might even be able to explain the gospel and explain parts of the Bible and still yet remain unconverted. And you might begin to think, well, are they elect or are they not? Well, you don't know. You don't know. And the story's not over until it's over. From a human perspective, no one knows who the elect are. But God says he has an elect who he has chosen. And so we're commanded to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Everyone. This is what, what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. As he, he, he is encouraging him his last letter to his protege Timothy. And he's trying to encourage him in gospel ministry. And he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. 
of the seed of David according to my gospel, for which I endure hardship even to chains as a criminal. But the word of God has not been chained. And he says this, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect. And, and he, like us, had no clue who the elect were. But he endures all things for their sake, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We, we proclaim the gospel to everyone. And, and if you're you know, outside of Christ and you're wondering whether you're elect or not, whether you're called or not, whether you're chosen or not, your response is always the same. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Call upon Him while He is near. Seek Him while He may be found, for He will abundantly pardon. He, he, he loves to save sinners. And yes, it is true, He, he only died for those whom He has uh, uh, chosen. But you don't know if you're chosen, and so the answer for you is to repent and believe, to seek Him, and to keep seeking Him, and seek Him, and seek Him. And if you're unsure of your salvation or where you stand, or you, know, you think you're saved, but you struggle with assurance, then seek Him. And you continue to repent, and you continue to believe, and trust Him. And this is why we gather. This is why we continue to go to the Word. This is why we proclaim the gospel, because salvation is serious. And it's why we uh, celebrate what God has done on our behalf, which began in eternity past. It's why we come to the table, because we're commanded to, to celebrate this glorious gospel, with, which began, this, this glorious salvation, this mystery, which began in eternity past, and God setting us apart, setting us aside for salvation, and then sending His one and only Son to live a life that none of us could live, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin, to go to the cross, to die the death that we all deserve to die, that we may be saved, forgiven, healed, transformed, converted, according to His purposes, according to His plan, for His glory. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as He has commanded us, and remember His sacrifice on our behalf, and just as a way of reminder, you don't have to be a member to partake with us. You don't have to be a member in this local church, but you do have to be a member of his universal church, of his wider church, of his body. You do have to be a true believer, born again, and a believer that is striving for holiness, as Paul would, would in a sense, uh, 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 warn the Corinthians not to eat this, eat this bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, but to examine yourselves. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then the men will direct you uh, to come up and uh, gather the elements, and then we will uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your salvation. If we are honest, those of us that are in Christ, if we are honest, we were not seeking you. Your word clearly says that, that no one seeks you, no, not one. We are seeking our own desires. We are going our own way. We wanted to be the king of our own lives. But you, in your grace, which began in eternity past, you 
separated us. You chose us for salvation, and then you sent your son to die for us, and you, at that point, uh, purchased us by his body, which was crushed for us, and his blood, which was spilt for us. And you gave us eternal life. You redeemed us. And then you command us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And part of that is to celebrate this great sacrifice on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we come before you and as we partake, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to confess any known sins. But also, help us to rejoice in your salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.